Hey guys, welcome to the Off the Beaten Path podcast. I'm Courtney Sweet. And I'm Jill Painter-Lopez. And welcome back. We are back for our, our second or third podcast this year. Yep, of 2017. So we've got a good one for you. Yes, we, we've just been busy, which is a good thing. Oh, there's so much going on. Playoffs, NHL playoffs, and Major League Baseball started, and NBA playoffs, and college sports, and you name it. You've been busy with Ducks. I've been busy with uh, Big West baseball and softball, but we were able to carve out some time. I'm really excited about this podcast today because um, it's a guy that you and I both know. I got to work with over basketball, Coach Dave Miller. He's our guest today. Um, I think if you could pick one word for him, I would say passionate. I'd go with energetic. <laughs> okay, both of those <laughs> really describe him very, very well. Yeah, you're definitely going to enjoy today's uh, today's <laughs> podcast. He leaves nothing uh, he leaves everything on the floor, we should probably say, using a sports term. But he's got so many stories, we'll probably have him on for a part two and a part three, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> we got to talk to him about a lot of things. One of the things we did talk to him about was um, Chris Paul. So let's talk a little uh, a little sports before we get to that. Clippers. Now, you cover the Clippers. Obviously, we live in L.A. We get to see a lot of what's going on. What What is your take about the Clippers? Well, well once, once again, uh, they lose... Um, you know, they lose in the playoffs uh, prematurely, if you will. Um, it's uh, been a tough run for them. Now, if you look back at the series or the history of the Clippers, if you go back to Ralph Lawler's days from starting in San Diego, I mean, they were so bad. But I think it tells you a sign of the times of how good they've gotten over the last, like, five to seven years mm-hmm. is that we're thinking of breaking up the team because they can't get past the first or second round of the playoffs. They've never been to the Western Conference Finals. They were given another opportunity with DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul, and Blake Griffin. Of course, Blake Griffin out, that's obviously a huge disappointment, but it's it's my belief that you should easily still be able to dispatch Utah in the first round mm-hmm. and take your chances with Golden State. Probably not going to win that series, but to not even get there and to lose three games at home – it just uh, looks really bad. Yeah. What are your thoughts oh, well, on, on what they need to do going forward? It's interesting because, you know, you have these two schools of thought, the blow the whole thing up and just start over, but then you also have the let's just keep them together because they really have been bitten by injury bug, and that doesn't – it's not making an excuse for them, but I don't think that we have seen the full potential of this team in the playoffs. I mean, I think didn't Doc win NBA Coach of the Month in April, and then yeah. now people are calling for potentially his job, or right. I do think – that it's like, hey, what have you done for me lately kind of thing. Um, I think there's some validity to maybe he shouldn't be the GM. Maybe he's a really good coach. But I think Ballmer coming in maybe didn't want to rock the boat too much, but been there a couple of years. Maybe you step back and you look and you go, maybe we bring in a GM. They need some depth. You know, with injuries, you have to have some depth on your bench. Um, I, it just it sucks about Blake. But I don't know. It's like if you blow him up, well, like, who do you bring in? What do you do? What's out there? I mean, they, they've got, what, free agency starting. You've got Chris mm-hmm. and Blake, J.J. Redick. I think, is it Crawford, too, I think? Um, Jamal Crawford, yeah. Yeah, you've got yeah. a lot of pieces that you would have to either replace or play Tetris with. Um, I don't know. That's why they get paid the big bucks, not me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and uh, you know, Chris Paul has that option that he helped write. Uh, as part of his role with the Players Association, he's probably not going to opt out of that because it's such a good deal uh, for a veteran like him to be, um, you know, in the situation that he is. So he's probably going to remain. Um, DeAndre Jordan has the big contract. He's probably the most uh, get the most value if you were to trade him. 
Uh, and then you could also um, do the same with, with Blake Griffin. It, it just, I will say this, those three has not worked. They have not even been close to a championship. I get that it's tough in the West with Golden State, but it's tough for the San Antonio Spurs as well. Obviously, it's tough for Oklahoma City with Russell Westbrook can't do it on his own. It's tough. Um, easier to get through East, Eastern Conference, uh, presumably for for Cleveland. But I think uh, this talk of stripping stripping a guy of his GM duties, it's possible. But I don't think that Doc would go for that uh, uh, to be able to stay just as coach. Once you go here, like you, you've got both roles to to go down, uh, a demotion, if you will. Um, Orlando still has their GM and coach, you know. I mean, he could go to Orlando and possibly get a deal like that. That's where his off-season home is. And so that's certainly a possibility if the Clippers were to do that. But the look on Steve Ballmer's face, we love him when he's dancing yeah, and happy. Yeah. When Joe Johnson made that jumper uh, in game four and Utah went on to win that game, uh, you, you just felt like he's not going to – you can't rest on your laurels. Like, yeah. this is not working. Yeah. Something has to change. And he doesn't strike me as a type who is going to continue to just go down this path without either – I'm not necessarily necessarily saying roster changes or something, but something has to. Yep. I mean, I think the thing when I watch the team, it's amazing on paper, and we know we don't play games on paper, but on paper – the talent that's out there when you have Chris Paul, when you have Blake, when you have Jamal Crawford, the sixth man of the year multiple times, right, or at least in contention, when you have this shooter, J.J. Redd, it just seems like they have all the pieces. Mm-hmm. But the chemistry on the court, it's like hot or cold. And it just, the, I, I think for me it's the lack of consistency yeah. is kind of what I would mm-hmm. And it's hard when you have a guy like Blake out of the lineup, but you're right, the the depth on the bench doesn't look good. I mean, J.J. Redick had a horrible shooting series. Um, and that when that happens, um, you know, for Utah, they had a guy like Derek Favors who steps up. Yeah. Like, the Clippers need somebody like that yeah. to step up, you know, whoever it is. So um, it, was, it, was, it was tough to watch. But, the, you know, just look at it, I think, in the big picture of it's a good situation for the Clippers because – um, they're not that team that is like the lovable losers. Like, you know, they're on the cusp of, uh, you know, they, they have big-time players, and mm-hmm. they're on the cusp of, you know, needing to make some changes to kind of get over that, that hump. And as Doc Rivers even referred to in his post-game press conference after they lost the series to Utah, he's like, people have been writing about our obituary for three months now. So people are expecting it to happen. Yeah. You know, and whether it does or not, uh, there will be some change. So I look forward to seeing what that happens. And Doc is uh, meeting with the media tomorrow, so it'll be interesting to see yeah. his continued thoughts on that. Look, I think to circle back on what you said at the beginning, I think to bring in cultural change, though, and that's what the Clippers have done. I do think that's a good thing. They they are, as you mentioned, people are expecting them to win. It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, here are the Clippers again. They've lost again. Like. There's, okay, we got to get over that hump. There's an expectation. So that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Look, I think they said what Chris Paul can make, $200 million. Um, You know, Blake, I think he can get offered like 175 or something. People are talking about trading. I, I, I think both of those guys like being in Southern California. They mm-hmm. have interest outside, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. Chris and, Paul has a lot of charitable events here. His family, yeah. his kids go to school here. And he also, um, I read earlier, it was a really good point, too. You know, as the head of the Player Association, he is around where a lot of the agents are. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing to be. And then, you know, Blake is very involved with the comedy scene and production company. He likes the L.A. area. I don't, you know, 
I know he's from Oklahoma, but like, you know, you, you don't have the comedy store in Oklahoma. And I mean, he <laughs> likes doing things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just me thinking out loud. I don't have any knowledge of anything, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But um, <clears throat> change, change is probably coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but w- one thing, though, like before we move on from the NBA, this was said a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was a great point was that, you know, this season, everybody thought at the beginning of the season with the Kevin Durant trade that all we would talk about all season was the Warriors. There would be nothing else. And I think it's really cool that this past season, there's been a lot of talk about the Warriors, especially with the KD injury and all that stuff. But, like, you have the Isaiah Thomas. You have, um, you know, the, the MVP race, the triple doubles with Westbrook. It's been a lot more than just the Warriors, and I think that's been a good thing for the NBA. And the NBA, I think, is always going to be like that. I mean, it's such a popular sport, and you have so many interesting uh, characters. I mean, you just look at the war of words between, um, you know, Patrick Beverly and... um, Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of Patrick Beverly and Shaq, but that's been a little bit. (laughs) They had a war of words, too. (laughs) It's escaping me now, but... Oh, Westbrook and... uh, Oh, yeah, when he... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when they were talking about guarding each other, and I mean, it was just, uh, it was so funny. You would, you would never have that in hockey. Hockey, the NHL guys are so nice. You yeah. Know? Uh, well, nice until they're checking each other into the board or knocking teeth out. Correct. Like, well, Isaiah Thomas had his tooth knocked out. The, 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 oh, that that was really yeah, funny. Did just you fix it up right right off the court? Yeah, and <laughs> reminded me of uh, our friend Brad Kaya when he had his tooth knocked out and and it crunched, and they were looking on the field and. Speaking of Brad Kyle, let's segue into NFL draft. Yes. Um, any initial thoughts on just the draft as a whole? Uh, I think it, I, it still piqued my interest. I know a lot of uh, people have said they're not going to watch and 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 all this, but um, it it was. I mean, from the second pick on, it was um, unpredictable. And usually, most drafts are baseball draft, mm-hmm. NBA. There's going to be one pick that just starts. Uh, a little mass chaos, and, um, you know, I think uh, it was certainly interesting overall. A lot of the interesting stuff, I think, happened late. I mean, Brad Kaya was uh, who we covered when he was at Chaminade High in West Hills, who played at Miami, came out a year early. Um, he was such a huge, huge story in the draft. Uh-huh. By it, Literally, he was up on the board of Mel Kuyper's best available for, you know, how many rounds, and yeah. ended up getting taken in the sixth round, and a lot of people were talking about, oh, what a mistake he made coming out early, and it's I think it's funny. It's like, you know, this kid got drafted, and he's going to play in the NFL. Yeah. He was a third-string quarterback yeah. at Crespi High School a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, you can make, like Tom Brady, Eric Seinheimer had a wonderful tweet about that. Mm-hmm. Like, remember, folks, Tom Brady was a sixth-round draft pick. Like, you can make out of your career whatever you want, as nobody cares. Once you get into camp, I guarantee you people are not calling you by the number three you were picked. Yeah. Uh, I think Brad tweeted something like that. I think even before the draft about, you know, or made a comment, you know, once we get into camp, everybody's equal. Look, I'm, I'm going to be partial to him because um, we covered him, we, we know him, we know his mom, like all of those things. So I'm just going to put that out there. But at the end of the day, you know, if you look at the Lions depth chart, you know, their second string quarterback, I think is, um, I think it's Rudock or Ruddock or something. It's played at St. Thomas Aquinas. It's not like... He's actually in a decent position. He's competing um, for the backup job. Yeah, and and their One family, away. their family is from her family is from the Detroit area. But mm-hmm. you know, when you look at that, you, you talk about Tom Brady in the sixth round. You got Russell Wilson in the third round. Dak Prescott in the fourth round. You know, they're 
100% what you just said, I was thinking, reading when people were saying things about people who fell. You know, we've seen other players fall um, down the draft boards of where we thought they were going to go. And at the end of the day, there are very few people that can ever say they were drafted in the NFL. So to say that, you know, you hear comments about, I don't mean like the word either loser or what were you thinking or you should have done this, you weren't smart. It's like, <laughs> you just got drafted in the NFL. That's pretty cool. Not mm -hmm. many people can say it. I think for me, watching the draft, I thought this was the most unpredictable draft I've ever seen or at least in a very long time because from that second pick on when the Bears traded up for Trubisky, you know, I was watching NFL Network and, and Mayock, those guys are just are such pros and even the guys on ESPN too. But you could almost feel that, like, even though these guys were prepared for any situation, it took all of them, like, a second to find their, their chemistry footing because that wasn't something they saw coming. They didn't and prep for that. No. <laughs> and they, they prepped for the player. They knew the stats. Sure. They knew this. But it was just, like, it didn't go according to script of, like, there are two or three players. Right. And, um, and, I mean, what a draft of 49ers. I thought Lynch did a good job. I mean, he – he worked that pick and and and, and I remember I did up. not like that hiring huh? and I loved I love Lynch mm -hmm. but I did not like that hiring I thought wow how's this guy gonna do but you know Elway had a lot of experience when he went mm -hmm. to that role and Lynch didn't but looks like he's doing yeah. very well in that role he definitely did but it and I have to say too um I thought it was pretty cool in Philly I like the emotion that was brought by the people that were the presenters. They had the you know the young man. They had to make a wish. They had mm -hmm. you know um, just other people like you know the little um, banter between the guy talking about the Cowboys and Jerry Jones and the Philly fans booing and stuff. I kind of liked a little emotion. You know, sometimes the NFL is tagged as a no fun league, and I felt like this draft wasn't as monotonous as those in the past. It had personality, and that's something that I think the NFL has been a little docked mm -hmm. on. Um, you know, or they've had points off for that with no celebration know this I feel like they're with the celebration you know um, flags being lifted or at least looking at that and then the draft being like this and apparently Goodell was egging it on like saying come on give us personality he was all for it I think that was a good moment for the NFL mm -hmm. and like you said for Philly and Philly gets a bad rap uh, sometimes because you know obviously their fans get a little too serious and they've experienced a lot of losing uh -huh. in, in Philly and they've done a lot of stupid things uh, booing Santa Claus, one of them, snowballs, all that sort of stuff. But I thought they really showed the, uh -huh. the, the people that were there in the city. It showed some, um, um, you know, just some some positive energy a uh -huh. lot. And of course, anything Cowboys is going to oh. bring about negativity. <laughs> but it was it was pretty neat. I mean, I I, don't, I think the NFL has to be so happy with how it how it turned mm -hmm. out in Philly and the you know foot that they they put forward and. Um, I also wanted to, to mention uh, my Broncos picking up Chad Kelly as Mr. Irrelevant. So not irrelevant, and I'm really interested to see what he does. And a kid that's had, you know, the lineage of, mm -hmm. of Jim Kelly and, and um, uh, the, their family, uh, but a lot of off-field issues. And I'm really curious to see how, uh, how you know, John Elway's organization can try and uh, help nurture him along. Because I think he could be end up not being irrelevant at all. Um, uh, and then, of course, James Conner, um, uh -huh. you know, who got, gets uh, drafted by Pittsburgh. I mean, I was just sobbing mm -hmm. watching that story and, and, you know, having overcome cancer to be able to get drafted in the NFL. Nobody more, I think, could appreciate being drafted or if guys who fell so far could just watch that and think what yeah. a blessing it is to be able to get drafted in the NFL. It's super cool. Like I was saying, you're drafted in the NFL. Yeah. Very few can ever say that. 
Um, yeah. And I like the event. I like watching it. You know, I, I watched as much as I could. And, uh, yeah, good on Philly. I mean, when you have a town that they used to have a courtroom below their old football stadium because that's how raucous and rowdy they would get to, <laughs> to, to kind of see them on a little bit better behavior was pretty cool. And, and yeah. I think it was, again, fun. But, uh, yeah. Gosh, I just can't wait for football to start. <laughs> How many days? Well, training camp's coming soon. Exactly. And, exactly. Two, and we're going to have two teams in L.A. and one playing in a soccer stadium. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that we would be saying this, right? <laughs> I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. But two teams in L.A., we'll just have to catch a bunch of games this season. Exactly. We'll have to, we'll have to we'll coordinate our schedules. From that would be fun. Uh, not StubHub anymore. What is it? Yes, it's StubHub. Is it StubHub? StubHub Center. Oh, yeah. it used to be Home Depot. Correct. That's what it is. Yep. Hard to change all these names until they get somebody else to a corporate sponsor. All right. So we have chatted a lot. Let's go ahead and get to our guests. So today, like we said, we had Coach Dave Miller, a longtime assistant coach. He um, covered the Lakers for what was Time Warner Sportsnet, now it's Spectrum. Um, He's done some work for ESPN3 and and, um, just other outlets. He's just been in this game for a very long time. He just, the man loves basketball. He loves the kids that he's had the opportunity to coach, the families. Um, it's just, I, I, I kind of, when I was looking at him, I was thinking, you know, man, he has given so much to basketball, and basketball has given so much to him. It was really just a wonderful interview, I thought. He, he has great stories. He, has, he can be serious when he needs to, um, but he obviously is one of those people who is about relationships in the game when it comes down to it, and it's neat to see all the – you know, uh, the people that he helps, uh, you know, in his camps, their parents who were former players of mm-hmm. his who maybe came through those camps, uh, the impact he's had on so many levels. We're talking kids, college, NBA, and it really takes, I think, a very – a person kind of with his demeanor and personality and energy to be able to deal with because it is such a different monster, you know, to work with kids and co- collegiate athletes mm-hmm. and pro athletes. Mm-hmm. Very different. So um, and he's got just the right uh, personality for that and – Again, lots of cool stories that you'll want to stick around for. Yeah, you want to definitely check out his social media. Um, you'll see everybody from LL Cool J to James Worthy to. Um, he told me that he had a restraining order against Rihanna, not she didn't have one against him. <laughs> so anyway, are you here with us, Dave Miller, in a nutshell? <laughs> exactly. Without further ado, here is Coach Dave Miller. As promised, we are joined with the coach, Dave Miller. What's going on, Coach? Hi, ladies. This is marvelous to meet you both in Manhattan Beach. I mean, you just brought tourism up. Because anytime two beautiful, educated, talented women like you come to this town, it's a win-win. Just keep talking, Coach. Just keep talking. <laughs> I feel honored we're with the king of Manhattan Beach. That's, uh, that's kind of your nickname, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we, we've been here since 1995, 96, when mm-hmm. I coached at USC. And uh, it's just been a marvelous place. When I first took the job, I remember everybody in the athletic department said, you're either going to live in Pasadena or you're going to live in the South Bay. And I remember a realtor took my wife and showed her some great houses in Pasadena that had big yards and bigger pools than over here. And then the next day, she went to the South Bay, and that's when I became poor. (laughs) No, I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, I'm from back east, and I, I remember the first house we walked into. Mm-hmm. It was three bedrooms, one bath, 1,200 square feet, and at that time, it was 799000 and I was like, what in the heck have we gotten into? Now, that same house is worth $5 million. Right. So you chose wisely, just like you chose wisely with your wife. 
Yep, yep. Uh, going on our 32nd year of marriage and uh, been out here for 21 years. And she's the reason I've been able to be the coach. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get all the credit and everybody knows the coach. But behind every successful basketball coach at any level, you've got to have a bride that's willing to pick up and pack up. And, you know, our journey started. We got married right out of college. Wait, let's start with before you got married. I thought your proposal story was pretty cool. Where did you get engaged? Oh, the birthplace of basketball. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a story in itself, but I told her one day, could you come over and rebound for me? And she came over to Blake Arena, and I said, hey, before we shoot, I've got to put some playbooks together, I said, of some new plays that Coach put in. So I had all these plays diagrammed out at half court and a stapler, and right behind the stapler, I had the ring box. And so she walked over. And she started stapling, and all of a sudden she looked over and she saw a ring box, and she knew. And the reason I wanted to get engaged there Mm -hmm. is that I told her, this isn't going to be a normal marriage. Mm -hmm. I said, I want to be a coach. Mm -hmm. And I said, with that, we're going to have to move. And there's two reasons why you move. You're either very successful and you move up, or you get fired and you move down. And this was a gal that had never been out of the state of Massachusetts. So I went to Springfield College. She went to Bay State Medical School right down the road. And we left, we left Springfield, Mass, got married in 1985, and we migrated all the way out here west, went once back to West Point, and uh, now we're out here. And each of our kids were born in a different state. So we have a New Yorker, mm-hmm. we have our oldest that was born in Arizona, and then Sammy, our youngest, that's 15. She's a Southern California girl. So you're, you're the, what we call a ride or die. No doubt about it. <laughs> and as they say, you get hired to get fired in this business, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been very fortunate to be in great situations throughout. And, you know, there's something to be said about whether you're a coach, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a cop, a fireman, or you work at the mall. It's hard for people to be happy for the success of others. And when you marry somebody with the amount of time that you have to put in as a coach... You've got to have somebody that you love, obviously, and that you trust. And when I say trust, not only in your marriage, but wanting to have kids. You know, I really didn't want to be a basketball coach um, before I got engaged with her. When we dated for four years, I wanted to be a detective in New York City. I grew up in Allentown, PA. And in the summer times, I would go with, to stay with relatives in Ozone Park in Queens, New York, so that I could play basketball against the best basketball players. And I used to have to take the A train in the summertime uh, to get where I was going to the parks. And I would always pass by the uh, Bergen Hunt and Fish Club. And for those of you that know the Godfather and the Mafia, that's John Gotti's, that was John Gotti's headquarter. And you could walk by there and every morning he would be out on the corner and they'd be in at that time it were the velour suits. I can't remember the names, but, you know, the maroon velour, the white velour, you know, and then a couple guys would be in. $1,500 suits. And the thing was, you could look at them, but you could never make eye contact. Because the rumor was, or the myth, if you made eye contact, you may disappear. So I was intrigued all summer watching The Godfather Mm -hmm. and wondering, and at that point I was just, I was young, I was in high school, and I really didn't understand that, you know, the CIA uh, uh, would wiretap or they would have microphones in there. So that was unbeknownst to me. But I would just go by and wonder, why are they outside? And then, you know, I started asking questions. I figured it out. And I wanted to be that guy that could infiltrate, that could figure out 
what they're doing, and then how to catch them. And as Eileen and I got more intense in our relationship and we were figuring out on each end without telling each other, hey, we love each other and probably want to get married, I finally said, I want to be a, a cop. I said a cop at first. And she said, a cop? I said, well, an undercover detective. And she said, oh, no. She said, oh, no. And she knew one of my favorite movies at that time were the Dirty Harry movies. So she knew I would be that cop. And she said, first of all, I can't marry you if you're going to be a cop. And even if I were to, how could we have kids if you were going to be a cop? Because you'll be dead within five years. And, and with that, I thought, okay, what else could I do that's competitive and to figure out, you know, offensive schemes to go against your defense or defense to be able to stop your offense and because of the love of the game and I was very smart I wanted to be an NBA player mm -hmm. but I knew I wasn't good enough to be an NBA player mm -hmm. that's when I decided to hone in on coaching and uh, as my wife would say felons throughout the year are pretty lucky that I didn't become yeah. a cop because I would have caught them yeah. you have to coach the journey yeah. of Dave Miller <laughs> What was your story as a basketball player? How young were you when you started? And um, I started at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was a second and third grade teacher for over 30 years in Allentown, PA. My dad died when I was one. So mm -hmm. after school, I would go to the YMCA. And not just for basketball, but almost, you know, because moms do their jobs. And you got to have father figures. And my grandfather was very close to me. But he was a carpenter, you know, for 50 years at the Bethlehem Steel. So there wasn't much athleticism there. I mean, we'd catch and throw a ball and shoot hoops. But I started at the YMCA, and so I'm always grateful. I was just back uh, maybe six months ago, and I don't go back very much. But I go see the different things, go to my high school, see friends. And I always go to the YMCA because uh, I, I, remember, I remember the apartment complex that we lived in right across, I think it was the 15th Street Bridge, and I used to have to walk across that bridge, and that bridge was high, mm -hmm. and I would be petrified and scared after school, and finally one day, you know, my mom said, are you ready to make that walk by yourself, and I made that walk, and so with the YMCA, I learned to play, and I wasn't a very good player, you know, um, I loved to play, mm -hmm. but I knew early on, I mean, the cop thing is funny, because I just, as a, as a youth, as a teenager, I wanted to be a cop, but Really, I fell in love with basketball in 1976. That's when it hit me. I remember watching Indiana play, and they won the national championship. They went undefeated. And call me crazy, which I am, I had some type of infatuation with Bobby Knight, uh -huh. um, the discipline, the way his teams played man-to-man. -man. And what's crazy is my very first job at the University of Texas, Bobby Knight's probably one of his top two best friends hired me. Mm -hmm. So it was an unbelievable story with my love of basketball because of that Indiana team um, to be able to work for Bob Weltlick at the University of Texas. Oh. We also had another connection with Coach Knight because you also coached at West Point. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was probably the most difficult job I had. I mean, USC was hard mm -hmm. because you're always fighting the stigma of South Central. And that was shocking to yeah. me because you're recruiting guys uh, from the inner cities all across the country, and negative recruiting exists then and it exists now. So you try as a recruiter, and I never really wanted to take that path because I had a great way. You know, I'd always say, well, if you got to talk bad about my school, you don't have enough good things to say about your school. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter was is the biggest 
detour I had while recruiting at USC was South Central. Mm -hmm. And when you get on that campus, and based on Hollywood, there's a lot of Hollywood movies that are filmed or pieces on there when you want to do a scene from England because of the majestic right. ivy and the buildings. And I mean, when you get on that campus, it's just unbelievable. You don't really know that you're in downtown LA. Right. Well, at West Point, it was this difficult because not only do you have to get good basketball players, and I didn't stutter, you can't get great ones there. <laughs> you know, my luck was at Navy when they got when they signed David Robinson to play at the Naval Academy, he was six foot five or six six. He grew to be seven foot. The kids that I signed at West Point that were six six, by the time they left, they shrunk and they were five seven. <laughs> you know, I just didn't have that luck. But what was difficult about coaching at West Point was that when you went out in the summer recruiting period, and back then it was July 1st to July 31st, you would go, and I'd be sitting there aside of Mike Krzyzewski, who was recruiting the best players at Duke. You know, uh, John Calipari when he was at UMass. You know, Roy Williams when he was at Kansas. Um, all the great coaches out there, but they're looking at the LeBron James. They're looking at the Paul Pierces. You know, I was looking at the guy that was at the end of the bench. Mm -hmm. And that's the different level from recruiting the stars. And when you're at that level, you know, or let me start with the high level. You don't go window shopping. There's no surprises. You know, everybody knew who LeBron was when he was in seventh grade. And now with the internet, we know who the best fourth graders are, you know. And so, they're signed already almost. Yeah, right. <laughs> but at West Point, you had to approach the summer. And this was my criteria. I had to come back on August 1st to West Point, and I had to have at least 300 players that I thought were good enough to play in the Patriot League, low Division I. Wow. And that being said, I had my A-list of guys that probably should have went to LaSalle or UMass, you know, uh, uh, Townsend State, you know, low to mid-Division I schools. That's your wish list, that maybe there's a connection. Maybe a grandfather went to a military academy. Maybe the parents wanted the kid to be a doctor, and that gets paid for. So why 300? Because, number one, once you get home with the list and you make your calls, you have to look at their academics. So a minimum, half of the 300, you've got to just cross their name off because they don't have the academic mm -hmm. standards to get in. Then when you get to 150, you've got to cut that list to 75 because at least 75 are going to say with very patriotic respect, no thank you. Mm -hmm. sure. The military no academy is not for me, Jill. Um, I'm not into that four or five year commitment. I can't remember exactly what it was. So now you've got to cut that 75 down. And what was crazy is, and there's so many patriotic states, but for me, Dave Miller in recruiting there, California and Texas were the two states. And New Jersey, I got a great player out of New Jersey. Those were the states where the people were the most patriotic in terms of being able to pull the trigger to come and serve and to go to school at West Point. But um, I say this, that was one of the best jobs I ever had because you were dealing with people that weren't going to be NBA players like David Robinson. But I recruited and kids that went there that were generals in the war lawyers, doctors, politicians. And you know what's crazy? Some guy that's a big wig at Costco or Kmart or Target. Leaders, you know, that, I mean, you got to be a leader. And then the crazy part was when all the pieces fit and all the stars aligned, you have to get a congressional letter from your congressman in your state. 
by far the most difficult job. But at that campus, you have men and women that fight to open the door for you. And a real funny story. Some of that, no yeah, <laughs> a real funny story in terms of how smart the kids were. I won't say the school I was at before, but I go there and I do a home visit. And uh, the mom or dad says, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Joe had 700. You know, we're talking about the SAT. And I'm like, oh, that's a great score. Now, we're going to need to bring him up. And he's like, well, coach, he had 700 on the English and 800 on the math. Well, you know, that's 1,500. And I'm sitting there going, the last place I was at, you know, if they had 700 and they had a pulse, I could probably get you admitted by a presidential. So th that was phenomenal. Um, the SC job was hard because you're dealing, you know, anybody can get players to come to the Pac-10. It's the Pac-12 now, but back then it was the Pac-10. But my thought process was, I got to get players that are as good as UCLA. And really, in my tenure there, I only beat them on one player ever, head-to-head. Wow. -head. We've got to get players that are better than at Arizona. And, you know, you say, well, why those two? Because those were the benchmarks. Yeah. You could get good players, a lot of good players in the Western Hemisphere that want to come. But you got to get players that when you're playing Arizona, your point guard has to be better than Mike Bibby. You know, when you're playing against UCLA back in the day, you got to get someone, and you couldn't, that was better than Baron Davis, but that was as comparable to Baron Davis. Easier said than done. So that job, job was extremely hard, but that's where we had the most success. We built a program at USC where we came in, the prisoners were running the prison, we had to build a culture, and in 2001, we lost to Duke to go to the Final Four. So that by far was the most rewarding place that I ever coached. Great stuff there. How, how uh, what about the transition and, and what was the difference for you? I know that's a market difference, but NBA, coaching in the NBA and coaching in college. So different. You know, in, in, in college basketball, you're really the parent. You know, you go back to Sam Clancy, probably would be the most heralded player that I signed at USC. Brian Scalabrini might be the most famous because of his mm -hmm. playing career and now he's in the media. But really, I got all the credit for signing Sam Clancy. And what's crazy about that is you have to have the backstory. Cincinnati had just won the national championship. Ohio State is always Ohio State. And here's a kid from St. Ed's High School in Cleveland. And I go in, and I don't know a single soul in Cleveland. Nobody, nada. I mean, the only person I knew in Cleveland was the concierge at the Marriott. You know, because I went in there all the time recruiting. And to go in and to be able to steal Sam Clancy from the Cincinnati, you know, team that, again, had just won a national championship, Ohio State, and then just all those Big Ten teams. Well, truth be told, back then there weren't rules about calling. Well, no, there was. I'm sorry. I got to go back on that. You could only call once a week. But the rule was the player could call you collect unlimited, which, again, we could do another podcast <laughs> on stupid NCAA rules. Think about this. I thought you were going to say on calling collect because no. it's been so long. Yeah, right. Nobody calls collect. You can't call collect for on a cell phone. Yes, this is for, well, for your young collect? listeners, um, and we'll tell you what a phone booth is also. But anyway, back to this rule where you could call a player once a week from Sunday night to Saturday at midnight, and you had to document it. And I had a graph 
You didn't have computers then either. I had a piece of paper that I had, you know, I'd have, you know, Jill Painter and Courtney Sweet, and I'd have each day, you know, 414243, and I'd check off when I called you. And that was the documentation you had in case the NCAA ever came in to investigate you. Obviously, they can pull your phone records, but here's, here's my charts. But the player could call you unlimited. Now, how did the colleges get by that? Well, all of a sudden, every basketball office in America got a 1-800 number. Mm. So now they could call 1-800. Now, no coach is going to get a 1-800 number at your house. And during the day, you're not taking calls. You're planning practice. You're watching film. You're getting ready to go to practice. You're making sure the tutors are doing their thing. You're going to strength, weightlifting, all within that 20-hour week that you had. So now, players could call you at home collect. But the reason they made that rule was to save money. So coaches crazy like me wouldn't call a kid every day. Well, now he's calling me collected home, and my phone bill is just exorbitant. But with that being said, I was never home. I was always out recruiting other players. So Sam Clancy started to have a relationship with my wife. Sam Clancy's mom one time was sick, not feeling good. My wife is an RN by trade, and my wife got on there and started telling her, you know, well, what's wrong? What are your symptoms? This is what you should do. And to this day, I firmly believe that Sam fell in love with SC. And I'll say this because I'm doing all the talking and everybody that knows me on TV and radio knows I love to talk. As a recruiter, I wasn't like this. I'm going to tell you what the best recruiters are. And my son, who is starting in this business and has been at Arizona, he's been at um, uh, Alabama with Avery Johnson and now just took a job at Santa Barbara with Joe Pasternak. Recruiters don't talk. The great recruiters listen. See, when I'm with other coaches, when I was doing this for a living, coaching, I didn't want to talk because I didn't want to give you any information. It's like a halftime interview. <laughs> yeah, 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 Popovich would be a great college coach. I don't want to tell you anything who I'm recruiting. As a matter of fact, I mean, I used to have my wife call guys that were good friends of mine that were coaches just to talk to their wives to say, hey, you know, after a couple minutes of conversation, where's Bob at? Uh -huh. Oh, well, Bob's at uh, Chafee Junior College tonight. Can you believe it? Or Oh, Bob's in Kansas, man. Did, does, does Dave know about that great kid, you know, uh, at so-and-so? He does and, now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, my wife always knew where I was because my itinerary, but you don't give up information. Great recruiters listen. And I give all the credit in Sam Clancy coming to USC because of the relationship that he fell in love with my wife as a second mom. But his mother fell in love with my wife as someone who would watch out for her son. Mm -hmm. And she was very blunt. She said, of course Dave's recruiting your kid. He's the best player in Ohio, and Dave's job is to get players. She said, Sam will always have a place to come when he wants to get away from the dorm or the team. And if he wants to get away from Dave, I'll make Dave leave the house and he can come over. <laughs> and that was the relationship that was bonded. Um, but yeah, that, that was a difficult, difficult job. But as I said earlier, man, the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. But obviously recruiting and parents, the college, but like... Oh, oh, the NBA. transition. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry. So, so I, yeah, I, again, I shouldn't go back into my recruiting mode. Jill, the biggest thing is, and you know, why I got into that, I was a big brother. I was a father figure to these kids, and especially being the recruiter. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the one that went at the head coach, yelled at him and got after him, and I yelled at him and got after him. I was the one that could put my arm around them after practice and go eat with them or meet them after study hall and watch film and tell them, don't listen to what he called you. Listen to why he's calling you that and do that. In the NBA, 
It's really simple. You're all professionals. And, you know, Byron Scott hired me, my first job in the NBA with the New Orleans Hornets. You go to work and you meet in the morning as a coaching staff. You go to work. The assistants get there early. You know, I was fortunate enough to have Chris Paul as my rookie. Mm -hmm. And I was in charge of the guards. You get there. You know, if practice started, let's say, at 11, I was there at 8 in the morning. And I would get my personal workout in. Then as the players would come in, I would grab a player and I'd work out on the floor. And my job was to teach them the offense so that when they got to practice and teach a rookie like Chris Paul the terminology, because I never wanted to teach you plays. I wanted to teach you how to play. Because if I can teach you how to play, no matter what action Byron is going to teach, you're going to know how to play and how to read in that action. Anybody can teach anybody how to do this. I mean, ultimately, I know nothing about cars, but if I watch you two change spark plugs and do it the right way, I'm going to be able to do it. I want to have a feeling of why the spark plugs need to be changed and what I have to do for maintenance. And that's how I approach it in coaching. So you go in, you have your coaches meeting, you go to practice, you practice. Some of the guys stay late, they work on their game, and then everybody goes home. It's the loneliest job in the world. You really don't have team meals. Now, you'll go out to eat with different players, but even coaches, everybody gets to a city and you do your own thing. You know, I go to New York or Philly, I've got family and friends. You know, let's just say we're playing the Sixers, we get there a day early and we get practice in, I'm going to rent a car and drive to Allentown, PA and see my mom. But it's not that bonding that you had in college. Um, you get to the hotel, you go to your room and all you do is you watch tapes, CDs. You get up the next morning, coaches meeting at 9.30, player meeting at 10, bus leaves at 10.30, go there, shoot around, come back, everybody goes their own way, players take naps. If it's your scout, you're watching tape. If it's not your scout, you're relaxing or getting ready for your next game because there's 30 teams in the league, so there's three assistants. So the top assistant is responsible for nine teams. The second assistant gets 10, and the third assistant, like I was, you get 10. So there's your 29 teams. So your role is to know those teams better than you know your own team because you're who the head coach counts on when you're playing. You know, let's just say my scout was, the, and it was, the Lakers. I have to know everything about the Lakers, and I've got to watch their last three games before we play to see what they're running the most of. What have they changed? What's their pick-and-roll coverage? And you're into tendencies. And those are the things that you look at in terms of trying to prepare your head coach to prepare the team. Um, so let's get on the bus. We go to the first bus leaves, and that's the rookies and the guys that aren't playing. Get to the arena. This is, you know, a couple hours before you work them out. The second bus goes, they're your stars. And when they get there, you have to be done with all the other guys because when the star gets there, he wants to get out. And what most people don't know that are NBA fans those guys get in, the stars get in a good 30-minute workout that's at game speed, the great ones. I've always said this, in watching different people, because you're at one end and the other team usually has the other end, Kevin Garnett, and I say this at all my basketball camps, I never saw anybody ever in my 28 years of coaching do a workout before the game like Kevin Garnett. He worked out 45, 35 minutes before a game with a coach harder than most guys play the game. And that's what made, you know, a lot of guys hate him. And you can, you know, you love him, you hate him. But that guy worked on his craft. And I watched him one time. And I came up with this phrase that I put into my workouts in the summer and pregame rituals. You got to take game shots at game spots at game speed. And from watching Kevin Garnett work out, 
that's how I, and he doesn't know this. I've never told him this. And I've met him a couple times through Scalabrini. They were teammates in Boston. And when the uh, All-Star game was in L.A., that Saturday night competition, it was crazy. I had a seat that uh, the NBA gave me, and it was right aside of Kevin Garnett. You know, and I, I didn't even have enough guts to tell him because I didn't want to talk. Because well, you couldn't talk? What? <laughs> no, because, because in that element, like here again, I'm doing all the talking. But in that element, you just, you, I don't know, it's going to sound crazy, but it was just a respect factor. And I didn't sure. want to talk. I wanted him, and he made me feel very comfortable once I told him that I coached and recruited Brian Scalabrini. Because now there was a common denominator. Because in this business, I don't think you can trust everybody. You know, you can tell me one thing and I can be taping you and you can cut it off halfway and it sounds like totally different than what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I get that. And I respect people. And, you know, now once I get to know you, I'll become America's guest. And if, like, I got to know him that well, I'd drive up to Malibu every day and see him at his crib, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I've never told him that. Mm -hmm. You should. But, but he yeah. was the reason. He was the reason that. And, and I don't want to sound tough and cool, but he was the reason for some guys that were working out, pros that I had, and I just stopped the workout. And I'd say, you know what? Come back tomorrow when you want to play hard. Mm -hmm. Come back tomorrow when you want to go game speed. You know what? We're going on a scale of 1 to 10 intensity at about a 5. That's why you can't get your shot off in the game. You've got to go game speed. And then the other thing I incorporated just from watching Kevin Garnett is that there's got to be cardio in your workout. Anybody can stand, you know, whether you're working on mid-range or threes, and somebody's rebounding and you just catch and shoot. you got to be able to. I always have you run. So if I want to get my shot, let's say, from the elbow, and, you know, picture the middle of the free throw line, a guy shooting a free throw. To the left or to the right where the lane line meets, that's the elbow. So let's say we want to get shots at the left elbow. I'm going to make you run to the sideline. So you're going to run opposite of the direction, touch the sideline, and then come back and get the shot. And then as soon as you shoot it and you follow through, you're running back to the sideline. Now, number one, that's how I got my workout because I got to run. You know, and some guys that are bad shooters, they're not shooting drills. They're rebounding drills. And I'd say, hell, stop. I don't want to rebound. I'm a good rebounder. I want net noise. I wanted that ball to come through the net and hear that swish, swish. Swoosh. And here's another great thing with some players, and I won't mention names. When they shot free throws, not jump shots, but free throws, if it hit the rim, say our goal was to make 100 in a row, and we'd stay there until we made 100 in a row, if it hit the rim with some of the great ones I worked out, that was a miss. Because mm. here's, here's probably the only important thing I'll tell you in this whole podcast. Besides how amazing your wife is. And my kids. <laughs> is that... Very few people know, ladies, that if you take a rim down, right now, you go anywhere in the world and you take a rim off a backboard and you put that rim down on the floor and you two, take two regulation basketballs and you put them side by side, you can fit two balls inside the rim at once. Now, you don't have to be a math major or a graduate of West Point, okay, to understand that if two basketballs can fit through the rim at the same time, all I have to do is get one up and over. And if I can get one up and over, just the gravitational force of the basketball gods and the karma of the workout, game shots at game speed, right? Yep, that basketball is going in. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the best thing about the NBA. Then the other thing is, man, just the greatest thing about the NBA Madison Square Garden, first time I ever coached there. I mean, that's my most favorite arena in the world. And, and I, this is going to sound corny and petty, 
but everybody has that moment. You know, like for each of my kids, I have a moment. You know, for getting married in 1985, man, I have a moment. Basketball, sure, it was great, you know, beaten in, in 2001. Man, we go, to the, we go to Nassau Coliseum, right, USC. We beat Oklahoma State, and that was the year they had the plane crash. You know, and no players passed, but I think it was an SID. A so, yeah. couple people passed. And I got to tell you, the God's honest truth. I almost wonder if my mom wasn't cheering for Oklahoma State yeah. because of the tragedy. Sure. You know, I mean, that was America's team at that time. We beat Oklahoma State. Whew. Next up, Boston College in Nassau Coliseum. <laughs> Boston College was not only the Big East champion regular season, they were the Big East tournament champions. And we squeaked by them. Then we get Kentucky in Philly. And I think it was the Wachovia Center. You know, I grew up, you know, a 76er fan, diehard. It was the spectrum during my era with Dr. J yeah. and George McGinnis and Henry Bibby and Doug Collins and Codwell Jones and Major Jones. I mean, th th that was my team. And now we're in the Wachovia Center. And they hadn't torn down the spectrum. They just did that a couple years ago. And there I am, the kid from Allentown. And I thought that was the moment. Mm -hmm. And we beat Kentucky and Tubby Smith. Oh, man. Sweet 16. Now we're going to the Elite Eight against Mike Krzyzewski, you know. And, you know, the guy that sent me to West Point, you know, the guy that took me under his wing, that, that taught me so much basketball back in the day. And I'm thinking, this is unbelievable, a chance to go to the Final Four in front of my family and friends, and we lose. But I set that all up because nothing ever Ever. And maybe it'll be when my daughter gets married that will trump this. Not my sons. Maybe Sammy was to hear the announcement of the starters and to hear my name in Madison Square Garden. You know, assistant coaches, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, this is the Mecca. Um, that, 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 I got chills right now talking because I was just, that was my spot. That was my, the Sixers were my favorite team. But anytime my grandfather could take me on a bus to MSG to see a Nick game, man, that 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 was good living for a for a for a for a kid from Allentown, PA. And you had a lot of experiences growing up there that you remembered so fondly, right? With your grandfather and family. So I think all that kind of tied tied together for you. But yeah. I've been to a game there and it's like a dump, but it's a beautiful dump, right? I mean now it now it is, right? It still it still is a dump. I mean you walk into oh, those garden? locker rooms. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's like they've they've made some renovations, but sure. to me, you know, it's sort of like the old Boston Garden. Yeah. You know, the it's oh, the, the T D Bell. Store. Yeah. But but just the locker rooms. See the old the old locker rooms in Boston Garden. Some players like James Worthy, you had to duck just to get down, and so yeah. your head didn't hit the ceiling. And then you know it's not miss. They would turn the heating up that it was like a sauna. Mm -hmm. You know, even in college, I remember playing at Oregon back in the Pac-10, and all of a sudden it's halftime, and we're waiting nine minutes because they can't find the guy with the key to open up our locker room. Now, trust me, that wasn't that 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 wasn't a fluke. They killed nine, you know, they're not putting any more minute on the clock, you know. But, you know, Madison Square Garden, the locker room, just a dump, but it's the fans. You know, I remember there, Chris Paul, his first year, man, went off. Like, it was a coming out party his rookie year. And you have Knicks fans, and as bad as the Knicks have been, and the Knicks stink. And, you know, they've been saying, 
buckle up, hold on, we're going to turn this thing around. I remember them saying that in 2004, 2005, and they're still not any better. But New York fans, even when they have great Nick teams, they're going to cheer the opponent if the opponent is worthy. They are by far, and I'm not taking away anything, Indiana fans obviously are great. Utah fans are unbelievable, you know, and they will cuss you out. They just won't admit it when they go to church on Sunday, okay? You can name a lot of places where there's basketball fans, but New York City, it doesn't get any better. It just doesn't get any better. Hey, every player brings their A game. Now, whether it translates or not, the the, the stat sheet will tell you, mm -hmm. but every coach, there's a couple, when the schedule comes out, there's a couple games you circle. New York, this is like when I'm in New Orleans. First time, New York, red pen, circled. Mm -hmm. South Beach, circled. L.A., circled. Mm -hmm. Those are the games. Now, those are the exciting games, but that's the game, man, you wear a brand new Armani. Mm -hmm. That's the game. That's the game you throw on some Gucci shoes. That's the game you make sure the dimple in your tie. Pay homage to the garden. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's true. That, like, I lived in New York by myself, and I remember it was the year that Duke played Stanford in Coaches versus Cancer. And I went down to the garden, bought a ticket at the box office for just me. I was like 19, 20 years old, and I went and sat and watched it because I was like, I cannot leave New York and not see a game at the garden. And I know it wasn't pro, but it was just. Being Any in game. there, it's like, I, I just, I can still see the tree, you know, the, the mascot and all the things, but it's like, that's a moment, yeah. you know? And the moment, so cool. the moment was, and I hope I have the name right, man, I'm getting old, I forget names, but my favorite announcer in the NBA was Dave Zinkoff with the Philadelphia 76ers when he would go through. But Johnny, no, Johnny Most was with the Celtics. I was going to say Johnny Most. I can't remember the name of the announcer in Madison Square Garden. But when he did Welcome to the World's Most Famous Arena, I mean, that's, that's, like hearing, that's like hearing the greatest pianist at Carnegie Hall. You know, that's like being at an opera. Mm -hmm. To hear that and Welcome to the World's Most Famous Arena in his voice with that New York tone, oh man, it doesn't get any better. What, uh, what, it, what was it like working with Chris Paul and, and what was there anything like a moment or anything that happened his rookie year that made you believe he was going to be a good one? Yeah, it's a great question, Jill, because um, <laughs> I tell this all the time. Because of Katrina, we all were in limbo. So we all flew back. Byron flew back to L.A. I flew back to L.A. Jim Clemens, I mm. think I think he was already in, in L.A. at the time. Um but when we all figured out where we were going, because, hey, Las Vegas was, they were talking Las Vegas. They were talking the pond in Anaheim. They were talking, if my memory's right, Kansas City had an arena ready to go. And then, obviously, OKC had, had, uh, had that arena to go. So, eventually, they said, okay, you guys are going to OKC. And there was a Marriott aside of the mall on the other side of town in OKC. And I remember meeting Mr. and Mrs. Paul. And from that moment, and this is where my recruiting came in, mm -hmm. just my keenness of eye contact, of how they answered the questions, the questions they asked me, and then just a, a synergy or a chemistry. 
I remember telling Byron, man, we've got a great one. And he had never, ever been on the floor as an NBA player with the Hornets. Never. There was just something about his mom and dad. They were old school. Um, they were no nonsense, yet funny. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Family. Yeah, it was just, I knew it. It was no different than talking to Sam Clancy's mom. I just knew it. Mm -hmm. Now, I, to sit here and say that I knew he was going to be rookie of the year, not true. Didn't have any idea. But I know that when he was drafted, I know that immediately he wanted a playbook. I know when he was drafted, he immediately wanted the video playbook. So we knew that he was a student of the game. Mm -hmm. And I've never told Chris Paul this. Because again, you know, you always, tell, you always say good things about people when they die and when they're dead and you go to their funeral. You know, and, and it, it, I'm the worst at this. But I like to kind of think I helped Chris Paul and coach him as a rookie. But Chris Paul taught me a lot of things too. Cool. Because of his high basketball IQ. And when you have a mutual respect with people, I'm doing a drill this way, and instead of just being an a-hole and saying, no, I want to do it this way, which some NBA players do, Chris said, what do you think of this? Or let's try this coach. And that's when I started to think, man, this dude is really special. And like any rookie, he struggled. And his biggest struggle wasn't X's and O's. His biggest struggle wasn't digesting the Princeton offense. His biggest struggle was being out on the floor and like thinking, I got to yell at P.J. Brown. You know, P.J.'s a vet. He's a dinosaur. And I say that in the classiest way. He's an old man. You know, Desmond Mason, who had been in the league. And then when you look at the core of guards, Gennaro Pargo, a former Laker. Bobby Jackson, we all remember from the Sacramento Kings. Speedy Claxton, that no one even knows his name, out of uh, Hofstra. Those were the other guards. And you know what? I've never said this publicly either. I really feel that those guards I just mentioned had as much to do with Chris winning Rookie of the Year because they took him under his wing. They loved him. Hey, it would have been really easy not to be happy for the success of others like we opened up this podcast. It would have been real easy. Oh, Chris Paul. I'm better than Chris Paul. They took him under his wing. They pushed him. They fought. They clawed because they weren't going to give up their position just because you're Chris Paul. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about a first-round pick, the face of the New Orleans Hornets at that time. They tried to beat his tail every practice and in every drill. But by doing that, they made Chris Paul better. And Chris had to understand that he had to talk to them like a coach on the floor. And that's hard to do when you're the new guy on the block. And you're so young, as you were saying earlier. I always think that's so interesting. It's like you're taking a young guy, you're giving him the keys to now the days, I guess, a Ferrari or whatever. But in like NFL, NBA, it's not like college where you're just a couple years apart. You know, you've got new guys coming in. Then you've got guys that are married, have kids. They're almost on their way out. But they still want to win a championship. It's like... Well, we don't want to win a championship and they want to get their numbers and they want to get their next contract. Mm -hmm. They all want to win championships. But let me tell you something. They're playing to pay their bills. That's the difference at that level, too. Yeah, They're well, you can correlate that to college because I always said this. If you don't make it to the NBA and we can't get you overseas, I want you to graduate. David Bluthenthal played at Venice High School, played at Westchester High School. 
was always the last cut in the NBA. 6'7", could shoot it, but was always a half a step slow. And when I say half a step, I mean half a step. Which is a ton in the NBA. Yes. But never left up his fight. He goes over to Israel, to Tel Aviv. He's the Michael Jordan of Maccabi Tel Aviv. And I'm not going to get into his financial stuff, but he made a lot of money for a lot of time playing over there. You don't have to be an NBA player. Find a niche. But the reason I bring up David Jill is he was short and he came back short in terms of degree hours. He came back and graduated and now he works in financial wellness downtown and I couldn't be more prouder of David than if he was starting, you know, for the Clippers or the Knicks or the Kings or uh, Golden State Warriors. It all worked out. He made a lot of money. He's a dad. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got beautiful kids. And now he's got a degree from USC. That's what it's all about. It's just that what's your goal? What's your niche? How do you fit in? In the NBA, you want to win a championship. You want to make as much money as you can. Not everybody can make it, man. But if you get your degree, hey, everybody gets two steps slow. Everybody gets weak and achy knees and hurt backs. We can take away your skill set. That deteriorates. But nobody can take away that degree. And nobody can take away those three letters or whatever school you go to. It could be UCLA. It could be Stanford. Hell, it could be Long Beach State. Mm -hmm. Every degree is worth something because you proved, and especially as an athlete, that you're better than the best. And if I ever owned companies, I would not only hire my players, I would hire female athletes from any school. Because when you're an athlete, when you're done with school, the normal kids can do whatever they want. When you're done as a normal student in college and you're a player, you're a lacrosse player. School, practice, study hall, training table, curfew. Repeat, seven days a week. You can't have a job when you're an athlete in college, but the normal kid can. You lose. You figure out how to win. You're on the bench. You've got to have competitive fire. I call it EFT, energy, focus, and toughness. How to get minutes. That's who I want working for me in any field. Hey, what's it like? Everybody, I know you've been a coach, but even when you were a broadcaster and now, everywhere you go, people call you coach. What is that like for you to, to hear that and know that that's how people refer to, whether you're eating dinner or you're broadcasting or whatever it is? I love it. There's a lot of people, though, sometimes that they sort of recognize you. And, and I, like I tell you, I, I've worked with recognizable people. Um, the secret of my success is I've always surrounded myself with people that are greater than me starting with my wife and kids to every boss that I've ever had. Where this comes into play, as a college coach, you're known in airports by college hoop fans, but it's regional. What was unbelievable, you know, doing the six years with the Lakers, two years on the radio, four years on TV, the four years on TV, people recognize me in L.A. They recognize me in Santa Barbara the other day when I was up there because whoever gets direct TV or Time Warner Cable or now Spec, uh, Spectrum Sports, you know, I'm in Vegas and Car Valet recognizes me. The Laker channel is a beast. And then being on there with James Worthy, a top 50 NBA player, an iconic Laker. And those are all 
his bad points compared to he's the nicest human being in the world. James Worthy treated me and treats me presently as if I was one of his boyhood best friends, if I was a teammate at North Carolina, if I played with him on the Showtime Lakers. It's always, how's David, how's Mike, how's Sammy, how's Eileen, before he ever gets to me. But with that being said, there's nowhere that I can go in Los Angeles where somebody doesn't say, hey, coach, hi, coach. The funny part is when you go out to eat, the waiters and the waitresses are really cool because they don't want to bug you. And so they won't say anything the whole meal. But when they hand you the check at the end, it's always, coach, I really love your show. And I really appreciate that. That's the great news. The bad news is, good or bad service, I'm leaving you 20 or 20 for 5%. When you say, coach, man, I really enjoyed you on TV, I got to throw in another probably 15 to 25% tip. Nice. Because, well, it's nice for them. Yeah. But you know what? You never want someone saying, man, he was cheap. And especially as the service is great. There's been meals where I've left almost the same amount of tip as I have as the bill. Because not only was the guy or the gal great, but at the end said something really nice. And uh, I love it. I, you know, I get it when you're a worthy, a Chris Paul, a Kobe Bryant. And there's been once or twice when I'm having dinner with family and friends. But you know what? Get over it. If somebody wants to come up and I'm sort of biting into my sea bass, and they always say, I hate to interrupt you. Well, in my mind, I'm already saying, well, you just did. <laughs> I am, never, really <laughs> I am never going to let on that it is a bother because I'm a peon in terms of celebrities. I'm, I'm like my wife says, man, you're a funny C-list celebrity. And I always come back, I'm a B-list baby. I have 26,000 yeah, followers. Right, right. No, I, but I'm just kidding. He's hanging out with Riri and yeah. Hello Cool But let me tell you this. No one could ever bother me like to ask me for a picture, to ask me for an autograph. No one. And it, it's almost as good as hearing your name in Madison Square Garden that you're being recognized. Because if it weren't for Laker fans, basketball fans, you know, when I'm on Sports Nation, when Beatle and Marcellus used to have me on, or, you know, I got lucky and I was on Mike and Mike for a stretch as their correspondent, NBA correspondent. For people to recognize who the little kid from Allentown, Pennsylvania that didn't have a dad, that learned basketball in the YMCA, that went to, and, and let me, we talked about Springfield College. I went there for one reason, to be a high school basketball coach. I wanted to be a high school basketball coach in Allentown, PA. I could have went to East Stroudsburg State College for $2,000 for the year. At that time, Springfield College was 8000 It was private. And my mom wanted me to go there. And I went there to become a, a PE teacher and a high school coach. And then to get hired right out of there and start at the University of Texas, no one could ever bother me for a picture, for an autograph, for a selfie. As excited as they are to meet me, and I think they know this, Jill, the expression that I have on my face and the smile that I give back, Courtney, they have to know that it's my pleasure, not theirs, because didn't everybody grow up? Let me, let me take you back into every guy that's ever wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Whether it was in college my four years or it was in high school in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. In my notebook, and maybe now kids use notepads and iPads and take notes like that or record it. 
on my little notepads, my notebooks, my three ring binders, on every side, all I ever did was practice signing my name in number six. Dr. J was my favorite player. I wanted to be number six and play in the NBA. I still have those notebooks at my room at my mom's house in Allentown, PA, where I showed my kids this was my autograph when I became an NBA basketball player. So my dream was to always sign autographs. And every kid has that dream. Now, not every kid's going to admit that, but in college I dreamt it. I wanted to sign autographs. And uh, I love it. It, it. it is an honor, and it's something that I'm probably not worthy of, but because of who I've worked for and the, the, the media market of Los Angeles, that too is one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. How special is it when you hear from past players, coworkers, coaches that you've uh, Well, we can sit here and we can talk about, I could name all the guys that I coached in the NBA. I can sit here and name about the guys that played in the NBA. You know, Jeff Trepanier had a drink there with Denver and Cleveland and Scalabrini, you know, Sam Clancy before he got hurt. But I've got to tell you one of the best two weeks in the Miller family is when we get the Christmas cards, especially from the guys that didn't make it to the NBA. And a lot of the guys I recruited, I was lucky because I always recruited, as I told you, I had to get players better than what were supposed to come to the school. You know, I, that's the only way you win or you're going to get fired. Yeah. So at Christmas time, when I get Christmas cards and they're of guys with their wives or maybe they're divorced, maybe they didn't even get married and they have kids. And there's two or three little kids uh, in Christmas sweaters. My wife does something that's unbelievable. She takes a whole wall. And then after Christmas, man, she's got to get someone to come in because she doesn't even tape it up. She pins them up with the little things that you put on a corkboard. And I got to tell you, that's probably one of the most special times in my wife's life because you asked me. But with her to see these knuckleheads that I recruited... <laughs> These knuckleheads that I coached that couldn't even take care of themselves. They didn't know how to put their socks on right. Remember John Wooden, first thing he taught every player? How to put on your socks and why? So you don't get blisters. These knuckleheads, and even ones that haven't graduated, that have found their niche to send Christmas cards. Or another thing that, unbelievable, Courtney, at my basketball camps. To have a player, I'll give you one, Roddy Anderson from Washington, D.C., lives in Newport Beach, played at Lassen Junior College, came to Utah State, was a power forward, a 3-4, undersized. I was a better point guard than him. We made him a point guard at Utah State. We won a couple Big West championships. He needed a job. I'll never, let's go back before he needed his Facebook, he just Facebooked this to me about a month ago. I totally forgot this because things you do, you just do. He wanted to be an NBA player, wanted to go overseas, and he did. But I told him how much I loved him a couple of months ago. And uh, he replied back on Facebook publicly something, like about another player that I did something. And he goes, well, Coach, I'll never forget when I was at Utah State and came over to I think the games were at the Pyramid, the Summer League, Long Beach Pyramid. He said, do you remember, and I didn't, do you remember when you drove, you flew over to L.A. and rented a car and stayed the whole week and told me that I could use the car and he was out of school, it wasn't a violation, or that I would drive him anywhere he needed 
to go to these workouts for European teams. And I totally forgot that I did it. And here's a guy telling me, I'll never forget that you flew over here to watch over me. And ultimately, the best term would be babysit him mm -hmm. to make sure he was okay because I made a commitment to him that I would be there. And I'm getting teary-eyed right now and choked up thinking about it because I forgot about it. That's what you do when you're a coach. That's what you do when guys give blood, sweat, and tears. And then this past summer, his son, Roddy Jr., came to my camp. So Roddy doesn't assume he writes out the check. Well, I get the check in the mail at Roddy Anderson. There's not too many Roddy Andersons, Newport Beach. Yeah. I ripped the check up. His kid is everything I thought Roddy was when he was a kid. And now I've got Roddy Anderson's son at my camp. And just two days ago, Roddy called me, send a brochure, man, he wants to come to camp. What are the dates? Those, those are just as good as winning games. That's one of my favorite things about sports, though, is that, you know, whether kids have father figures or mother figures, whatever, coaches can also be that, even if it's an addition or in place of. And I didn't know that you lost your dad when you were one. And so I'm sitting here listening to you, and I was like, man, he lost his dad, and I know he had his grandfather, but his whole life's mission has been about being an extra father figure or a father figure to these young men or young women and their families. And I just think that's beautiful. Well, it's weird that you say it. I hate to get mushy, and I, I have to fight it back, but that was my goal. Um, man, make me soft. My goal as a dad was to be the best dad I could be for my three kids. And... I don't have a lot of money. We live a good life. Man, people think when you do all this stuff that you live this exorbitant life. And again, it's because I know people. You know, you can go on my Instagram and see me in a private jet. That's not my jet. It's a friend's jet. It's a $34 million jet that I just happen to ride on. I'm no different than any person that comes up to me on the street. But I've given my kids everything that I can give them. And... Even if it puts me in the hole, my job was that when I die, that my kids are going to be able to say, man, he was the best dad. And not just materialistic, being there for him. Because my mom raised me with my grandfather, but my mom was my rock. She was my hero. She gave us everything we wanted. I wanted a horse. I don't know how the hell she did this, ladies, but she got me a Pinto horse and boarded it at the Little Lehigh, right by the fish hatchery, at Boots and Saddles. And I don't know, man, I was a dumb kid. I don't know if it was $150 a month or if it was $50 a month to board this horse. But I had a horse named Shoshone. And again, you can go on my Instagram and see an old picture, a Pinto. And my mom got me a horse. I wanted a horse for Christmas. 1981, I graduate from high school. I don't know how the hell she did this, but I drove to Springfield College in a brand new 1981 red Camaro. Ooh. And at that time, don't get me wrong, that Camaro might have cost $8,000 or I don't know, maybe it cost $5,000 or maybe it cost $11,000. My mom bought me a brand new red Camaro to go to college. And so every day, my whole life, Still now, my son just got a brand new job, left Alabama to get a promotion to go to 
University of California, Santa Barbara. On the way up there on Saturday to see him, we're driving up the 101. Before my wife could say it, I go, oh man, Camarillo. I hope I said that right, Camarillo. The outlets. <laughs> we go right to Brooks Brothers. Go right in there, man, and buy my son three ties. Because I want him to pick out the ones he wants, but they were blue and gold. Because now he can't wear his Alabama colors. And that's just the point of me giving. You know, I don't want to come across just because, you know, my daughter wanted to meet Justin Bieber. Boom. I have the resources to make that done. My wife wants to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We're backstage with Flea, biggest L.A. Laker fan. Done. You mentioned Riri. Met her at so many Laker games, she has a restraining order on me for selfies. Not really, but she should. You told me you had one against her. I did too. I just didn't want to say that. But my point is, it just puts me, Jill, in a position to be around all this greatness. But at the end of the day, I want to be the greatest husband to my wife because I'd be nowhere without her. Nowhere. Nowhere. I wouldn't be the coach if she wasn't the missus. And with my kids, 26, 24, and 15, I've never grounded my kids. My sons have never made, knock on wood, a bad decision. And if they have, I haven't found out about it or it wasn't bad enough to know. My daughter is 15. She's never had a bad day. And that's all because of my wife. We're married 31 years, been together 35 with four years of dating in college. My wife has had three bad days in the 35 years I've known her, and I personally have caused two of them. And because she's been that way, I don't need much. She calls me Madonna because I am materialistic. I have to drive a nice Mercedes. I'm a Mercedes guy. But other than that, guys, I could live in a broom closet. I could live... I could live in a one-bedroom apartment with 10 people. That means nothing to me. But watching my son follow in my footsteps, watching my son, Mike, take his career path, watching my daughter want to be, you know, an Olympic volleyball player and then do what you two do because you two are role models along with Jamie Maggio and Lindsay. It was Lindsay Soto. Now it's Lindsay Rhodes. Those are, you all are role models to my daughter. You know, and yeah, I, I, I want to be the best dad. I want to be their best friend. Um, my wife is my best friend. And um, I mess up a lot. I make a lot of mistakes. But at the end of the day, I can always look in the mirror. And different than most people, they can't admit their mistakes. See, I know I'm, I'm messed up. I know I'm not normal. I know I'm weird. But see, I can look in the mirror and go, I know this. It's the people out there that are messed up or effed up that don't think they're messed up or effed up. They're the idiots. I know, man, I make 100 mistakes a day. But at the end of the day, man, and I'm not a holy roller. I believe in God. I go to church. You know, I converted from Lutheran to become a Catholic to marry my wife so we could have one religion in our house. But at the end of the day, I know there's only one God. And... I think he's white. I think he's black. I think he's a lot of things. Because there's somebody up there, whoever you have to answer to, 
that looks out over us. But because of him and because of my wife and because of all the people I get to know, I want forgiveness all the time because I never make mistakes on purpose. I never offend or insult somebody on purpose. But because of my personality, because I'm outgoing, because I have to make opinions, because I have to be an analyst and talk, people have to know that it's never personal. Never personal. The only time it would ever get personal is if you did something to my family. Then it's personal. Then it's personal. But to do what I get to do and to make a living at it, I admire everyone that I ever talk about. On a good night when they drop 20 and 10 or on a bad night when they're two for 16. Because without them, the players, without the fans, I and the rest of us would be nobodies. That's what great, this, that's how great this profession has been to all of us that have the luxury to do it. Well, I would definitely say that Basketball has given you everything, and you've given everything to basketball. I, don't, I mean, your passion, your love of the game, your love for people and things around the game. I mean, you can't be in your presence two seconds and not Thanks. recognize that. One second, actually. <laughs> and you're not weird. You're different and unique. And that's, that's to be celebrated. My parents got me a shirt one time because I, I can be a little quirky, too, and it says, I live in my own little world, dot, dot, dot. But it's okay. They know me here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's good for you and Jill. I appreciate it. If my wife was sitting here, I'm weird. I'm, I'm weird. I'll go but, with her then. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, like I said, um, never, never, never want to insult anybody. Never want to make anybody feel bad. Um, because you know what? Man, we're on this earth for a short time. And, uh, you know, I would just say to people, and, and I'm not very good at this, but I'm getting better, is to tell people how much you love them. To tell people how grateful, you know, my basketball camps are coming up right now. And so once I get an application and I send a little confirmation and this year, you know, I welcome, can't wait to see you. Uh, I love to teach and preach. Here's a couple things that I think you should do between now and July 10th. Get, do your homework, respect your teachers, go to bed early because if you don't know it, you grow when you sleep, eat your vegetables. And then I listed a couple other things, and it just hit me while I was typing this out. And I sent it to every kid that's going to come to my camp. And I sent it to the kid, not the parent. Their email, but the kid's name. And my last one, my sixth bullet point was, make sure you kiss your mother and father every single night and every morning. And thank them for being your mom and dad. And, uh, you know, I, I love it. Talk about weird, Jill. I say hi to people that are looking down or that are texting, and this is really weird, going into a health club. Just, and people find it awkward, but you don't look at me to say hi, I go, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and it startles them. <laughs> and some of these people are so socially weird, they don't know how to react. Or, or others that I don't know, and I know almost everyone in the South Bay, they'll be like, hey coach, sorry man, I was deep in thought. I'm like, put a smile on your face. And you know what? Today, get five other people to smile. Mm -hmm. This world will be a much better place. All right, and we are back. A huge thank you to Coach Dave Miller. Um, Love talking to him. Thought his stories were interesting. Wonderful man. He's a wonderful friend, coworker, and just so glad that he was able to take the time, and, or we were able to take the time to sit down with him. It was cool. 
and we, you know, we really obviously could have talked to him uh, for a long time because, uh, you know, there's so many, so many emotions and, and uh, you know, it, you know, talking about family and uh, relationships that come in the game of basketball and uh, just had some, some really interesting stuff and really hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. working with him. Well, it was a long podcast, so we will wrap this up. A huge thank you to Coach Miller. Thanks for taking the time. Um, Jill, social media, where can we find you? Jill Painter on Twitter, Jill Painter Lopez on Instagram, and Jill Painter Lopez on Snapchat. (laughs) Gotta see if I get you that Z on there. Actually, it's become your thing. I know. Um, (laughs) Um, And yours? (laughs) On Twitter and Instagram, it is at Courtney and underscore sweet. That's Courtney with a C. Um, not a K, all the Kardashian craze these days. And then uh, Snapchat is at the C Sweet Life. Um, that's going to do it for today. We have potentially a couple of cool guests coming up. We're looking forward to that. But for now, thank so you cool so much. So cool, they top secret. That is top secret. But <laughs> thank you so much to everybody who's listening. We will continue to do this, continue to grow, get better, talk about sports. Um, we're best friends, and so this is just cool to be able to, to talk with people together. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye.